0: Pastor Elwert, thank you very much for the kind invitation to join you here and your wife and children. And it's a, always a blessing to catch up with our alumni to see how they are doing and faithful church members. Uh, we actually were connected with the Elworths very quickly upon our arrival at uh, Intercity Baptist Church. Uh, our two sons, as Pastor mentioned, go to school together and. Uh, Our son had opportunity to stay with them on occasion and their son stayed with us on occasion. And we do thank the Lord for them and for the ministry that God has raised up here. And, uh, you know, as I think about life, I'm reminded that each of us has been providentially equipped with a series of background with our family and life experiences that prepare us for uh, living for the Lord and communicating with others about God's truth. I am uh, reminded of my own upbringing because I grew up in the family of a school teacher. My father taught school for 35 years in the township of Redford and taught junior high most of those years. And as a result of that, our family vacations usually consisted of something like this. Trip to Philadelphia, Constitution Hall. Trip to Boston at the uh, the Independence Green where the shot was heard round the world. And uh, we we would go to places like that, and we would study history. We would go to Civil War battlefields, and we did go to Cedar Point or a few other nice places like that, and we'd somehow find a nice place where we could go swimming. But there seemed always to be exposure to history. My my father always wanted us to learn something about our heritage as Americans, and and so I I was able to learn a lot, and uh, that was always very, very beneficial. I also had opportunity to travel. Most of my father's relatives were from the deep south in Mississippi and Texas, and so we would go down and we'd visit relatives back on the old plantation farm that was, uh, you know, still a working farm with my great-uncle. And we, we would get a chance to travel all around. And in more recent years, I've had the opportunity to travel uh, for Europe, uh, through Europe, and, and just a few years ago, was able to travel to India. And one thing that I've learned as I've looked back over all the, the time periods I've studied, all the places I've been able to go, is really people don't change very much. Now, I'm, I'm not speaking of the fact that we as believers are continually being changed from, by the Spirit from one image into another as we grow into greater Christ-likeness. But if you look at the basic challenges and struggles of people around the world from one age period to another, people really struggle with the same things. Generation after generation, century after century. And as I was thinking about history and some of those things, I, I my mind was turned back to some quotations I had found recently. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to listen to these and find the common thread woven through each of these statements. The first one is from the 1700s it was written by a man named Thomas Jefferson, who is a fellow Virginian. Uh, we visited his home Monticello there near uh, when we were in Virginia. But he said this: "How much pain have cost us the evils which have never happened?" you've got to think on that one a little bit. How much pain have cost us the evils which have never happened?" What is he talking about? Well, let me go much further back in history, this time to a, a Roman, and not setting these people forth as spiritual examples, other than that they were discerning people and observed some things about human nature. This man's name was Seneca. At one point, he was a senator in Rome. He observed this in writing to his friend named Lucilius. There are more things, Lucilius, that frighten us than injure us And we suffer more in imagination than in reality. Let me read one more time. Think about what he's driving at. There are more things, Lucilius, that frighten us than injure us. And we suffer more in imagination than in reality. Basically talking about the same thing. Same thing. Now let's let's move further back in history, only this time I want us to look to an inspired source. In the book of Proverbs it says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. You realize those first two quotes really are talking about anxiety. Worry. Thomas Jefferson was able to observe that it is a painful experience even to contemplate the potential possibility of these things. They weigh us down. They occupy our thoughts. They can cause us to be agitated. And things don't have to actually happen to affect us. We just have to contemplate their happening or thinking about what would be the results if they happened. This other ancient philosopher observed that there are many things that frighten us without actually injuring us but that our anxiety over them causes internal injury to us, even though the thing never really materialized. The worry itself has already injured us internally. And that's why Proverbs says that anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Because in this passage of Scripture, these two short verses... We find something that people of all ages, all cultures, and civilizations have struggled with. And in spite of all of our technological advances and all of our cultural and economic advances, we still, as human beings, even as Christians, we struggle with anxiety, worry. Philippians chapter 4 both describes the problem warns us of its danger, tells us what the proper recourse is, and shares with us what we can expect as the promised divine blessing if we'll heed its instruction. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety is a disturbed state of mind produced by real or imaginary fears. And honestly, it is a cradle-to-grave challenge. It doesn't matter what age we are, whether we're in fifth grade or whether we're 50 years old, that anxiety can be a constant challenge. Depending on our age, the stimuli or circumstances may vary, but the root is the same. And the fruit that it produces is the same. Anxiety can be spurred on in our lives by many different factors. It can be spurred on by hardship. Things that I don't want to experience and I'm anxious over what might happen. Or deprivation. Things that I don't want to do without and I feel it slipping away out of my control. And what will happen, for example, if I lose my job? Anxiety can come because of uncertainty. When we think about things for which we do not know the outcome, I can't be certain how it will work out. And we can become anxious even contemplating it. As we think about God's counsel for us about all these things, these these hardships and uncertainties, all these things that can cause us to be unsettled, we need to look to His inspired Word for simple yet profound counsel. If we look in verse 6 of our passage this morning, there are three basic statements in these two verses. First of all, we can see He says, be anxious for nothing. It's a command. Something that we are challenged that we must do in order to act in faith, to act in obedience that we must not allow our lives to become overwrought and filled with anxiousness and worry. And then he gives a prescription, if you will. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And finally, he shows us the prognosis or a promise that we can look forward to when we follow Him. And that is, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's it's not a hard outline to see. It's it's not a a complex set of statements. But yet, anxiety is one of those things that can always creep back into our lives like opening a door on a fall day and, and the wind blows leaves back in where we've once swept things out. And so we have to always be mindful of its danger aware of God's promised solution and calm and confident because of His promised outcome. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, Be anxious for nothing. Be full of cares over nothing. That we shouldn't allow worry and anxiety to fill our lives, even in small, seemingly insignificant ways that sow seeds of worry and doubt. The author is not telling us to have a detached view of life. He's not telling us to be indifferent towards real, legitimate challenges of life. We're supposed to be aware of our surroundings and and concerned about challenges that must be addressed and overcome. And he's not telling us to be passive, to fail to take responsibility when we're given tasks to complete. But he is telling us that when things come that can unsettle us, we're not to turn... To our own resources we're not to turn in, in fear and doubt and worry but to turn to the Lord. This passage is warning us commanding us to stay away from the dangerous practice of faithless worry and anxiety allowing ourselves to be controlled by feelings of apprehension or distress. It involves that stress or worry involves our mind and heart becoming monopolized or spiritually handcuffed, if you will. By cares and concerns of life, the the English word that we have for worry comes from a background that means to strangle. It, it's used for for sheepdogs that would run cattle to the point where they can hardly even breathe, and they're 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 worrying them almost to death. And it means to to strangle, to push something almost to the point of being breathless. Our word from which we receive the word anxious in Greek means to be torn apart. And anxiety really is that. It's causing our spiritual life to be strangled down, to be choked down, our vitality and joy. And it's us having thoughts in our mind, feelings in our heart that pull us in different directions, that tend to tear us apart. Our mind can keep us thinking about problems and we are weighed down. And it creates a vicious circle of discouragement and distraction. He challenges, commands us to be anxious for nothing because worry and anxiety can cause us to become distracted from important priorities that God has given us. It causes us to forget about the multitude of blessings that He's poured out on us. And we get, we get focused on that little thing that we can't control and we can't predict and we can't explain. Worry can lead us to become discouraged and lose hope, seeing only the negative or the overwhelming nature of things, and thus makes us even less capable of handling God-given challenges. We're reminded in the Scriptures that none of our needs catch God by surprise. None of our needs overwhelm Him. When we face trials and tribulations, a response of anxiety isn't necessary at all. You know, when we're facing those things, we need to come to the Lord. For example, in Matthew chapter 6, he challenges, Jesus challenges the readers, "...for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Do not say then, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing?" For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. People who don't know the Lord become anxious because they're actively seeking and craving these things and when it seems like it's eluding their grasp, they have no other alternative and their life starts to fray. But for us, when we see those challenges and struggles, we can say, but my Heavenly Father knows that I have need of all those things. And none of these needs escapes His attention. And so I can, in faith, respond calmly instead of by worry because Christ gives me joy and peace. First Peter 5 reminds us, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. The fact is, He doesn't want us to resort to worry and anxiety because He knows how dangerous it is for us. And He knows how unnecessary it is for us. Because He knows all our needs and He cares for us. And whether we're facing hardships or uncertainties, He wants to meet our needs for His glory. But not only does He give us a command because worry is something dangerous, even though we can very easily try to rationalize and excuse it and it's just a little little worry, it's nothing at all, but it sows seeds for us. But not only does He command us to refrain from it because it is faithless and failing to acknowledge His care and ability to meet our needs, but also because He's already given us the right response to those things that can cause care to rise up in our life. Look at the last part of verse 6. Not only does He give us a prohibition, be anxious in nothing, but He gives us a prescription. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now I mentioned my father was a junior high school teacher. He taught history and social studies. He also taught English. So I I had lots of emphasis upon learning my nouns and verbs and participles and all those kinds of things. But really, there's a simple simple lesson in English language right in that verse. And it's actually one that's important for us to unpack that verse. If you look at verse 6, you'll see a main clause and then you'll see there are several descriptive words that describe how that thing is to take place. And if you want, we could put a bracket, a parenthesis verbally around some of these words. So here, here's how the main clause would go. It says, But in everything, let your requests be made known to God. Now, we're not skipping those verses because they're unimportant, but those words are important to describe and answer the question about that main clause. But in everything, let your requests be made known to God. That's the main, the main phrase there. In everything, let your requests be made known to God. Is there anything too small for us to take before the Lord in prayer? The obvious answer is no. Even though at times we feel like God wouldn't want to be bothered, Or that we can handle it all by ourselves without His help? The fact is we're supposed to let all of our cares be brought forward to the Lord as requests. Even the simplest things of life have the potential to produce worry and anxiety. And our response should be rather in everything to let our requests be made known to God. Is anything too big to bring before the Lord in prayer? And again, the obvious answer is no. But if we don't make it a habit to bring before the Lord the routine challenges of life, do you think that we will be highly motivated or our hearts prepared in humility to bring those big requests before Him when they come our way? Our hearts need to be trained and discipled to humble ourselves before the Lord so that He can exalt us. That He will meet our needs. So no request is too small to bring to the Lord. No request is too big to bring to the Lord. And what these verses in that verbal parenthesis tell us is how to go about the proper approach to bringing those requests before the Lord. We can always yield to worry, but the Lord commands us instead to yield ourselves to prayer. To bring those requests before the Lord so that our hearts are not overwrought. Look at how those that, that process is described. In everything, bring your requests, let your requests be made known unto God. And it describes in the middle part of the verse. How do we do that? How do we bring our requests before the Lord properly? We do it by prayer. Now in our English language, we, we tend to lump everything about communication between man and God in a Christian perspective, we kind of lump that all into prayer. But there are a number of different words in our New Testaments that describe prayer. And this one specifically reminds us about adoration, about acknowledging the greatness of God. We're to bring our requests before Him with prayer. Coming before the Lord, enjoying His presence, and honoring Him in worship, adoring Him for His greatness. Not to rush into His presence and beg Him for things without first acknowledging His greatness, His glory. Our, our being undeserving and unworthy, but yet His mercy and grace to reach out and to meet our needs. We can bring our requests before a great God as an act of worship. I'm reminded about the greatness of our God in Hebrews chapter 4. If you would turn there with me. Hebrews chapter four reminds us of prayer to our great God. We look in verse fourteen, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, like our struggles to worry but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So how are we supposed to come to this great God, this understanding God? It says, verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come to Him in prayer as a great God who understands our weakness. He is not a God who's afar off only, but a God who has respect unto the lowly, the psalmist said. He's not only the great God of the universe, but in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, He came and experienced all the struggles we could experience. And yet He did it in a way that was without sin, so that when we come to Him, He understands the struggles and the trials that we deal with. And He beckons us to Come boldly, not, not arrogantly, but with confidence that He's invited us in. Says, Come. And He meets our needs and gives us mercy and grace to help in time of need. We're supposed to bring all our requests to the Lord because He's a great God who delights in hearing us, who understands our struggles, who would meet our needs. But if we look back in Philippians chapter four, how are we supposed to pray? We're supposed to bring all of our requests before Him with prayer, acknowledging and adoring the Lord and all His glory and splendor as a great God. But we're also, it says, to bring our requests with supplication, by prayer and supplication. Supplication emphasizes an earnest, sincere desire of the heart to come before God. We come before a good God who we know will not humiliate us or punish us. We come as one who is desperately needy. I'm a supplicant. I'm, I'm offering supplications. Lord, You know I'm in a desperate strait. You know I'm in really tough circumstances. And I'm struggling with this. I don't understand this. This is unpleasant. It's hard. And Lord, I'm coming as one who is desperately needy and I, I implore You as one who I believe to be good and know to be good to reach out and to meet my needs. When we think about the goodness of God in prayer, when we're facing things that can induce anxiety and worry in our life, we're reminded in the scriptures of the goodness of our God and that we should pray in Matthew chapter 7. If you wouldn't look at Matthew 7 because in these verses it reveals the character of God and why we should be Quick to come to him in prayer. In Matthew chapter seven, verse seven. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. I mean, he makes a clear statement that I long for you to pray. Don't yield to worry. It will, it will be your undoing. It will begin to unravel your life and undermine you. But come to me. Bring all your requests to me. Because I am a good God. I will answer when you ask. And then he gives several illustrations. He can contrast what we know and can see in human relationships. And he contrasts that with a perfect, sinless, omniscient God. Verse 9, Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, that is sinful, flawed human beings, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? I mean, just imagine your loving earthly father or your loving earthly mother, seeing you as their child whom they love, even though we are imperfect, all of us, they they would not see a real need and spite us by giving something harmful. They wouldn't spite us by purposely giving something that would be totally unfulfilling and not meet our need and would frustrate us. But God, in a more immense, perfect way, is a good God who cares who knows our needs and wants to meet our needs and he encourages us to bring our prayers before him but look back in in Philippians chapter 4 because he not only says that the right way of bringing our requests before him is to pray and to worship and adore him as a great god but it also involves recognizing bringing our requests before him with thanksgiving but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, is it a good and a right God-pleasing thing for us to, let's say in a prayer meeting or family devotions, to, to say, Lord, I want to thank You for all the things that You've done. Lord, I want to thank You for the good health You've given. I want to thank You for the good church family You've given me. I want to thank You, Father, for the, the job that You've given me that's been stable throughout this difficult time. That's a good thing to do, isn't it? To express our gratitude of heart. But is that the emphasis of that verse? That while that is a good thing, there's a different focus of thanksgiving in this verse. And that's because we're at this very moment not thanking God for answers to prayer that He's provided. That's a good thing to do. But we're offering up requests to God which have not yet been answered. And we're supposed to bring those requests yet unanswered, those requests, before Him with thanksgiving. We're not thanking Him for what He already did. We're thanking Him before He's done anything. We're coming to Him and saying, Lord, I'm bringing these requests to You and I, Lord, I just thank You. I thank You for who You are. I thank You for how You work in my life. I thank You that You know what I need better than I really know it myself. And Lord, I thank You in advance that You're going to work these things out to accomplish Your purposes in my life. So I can say thank You right now, Lord, before I can see the first glimmer of the answer. We are reminded to always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God even the Father." This passage emphasizes a spirit of gratitude and appreciation for what Christ will do in His infinite power and wisdom that we can be grateful that He will work these things out even though we try to finagle them and manipulate them and it just doesn't seem to be coming together we can say, Lord, I'm thankful that You understand all this and that You can control all this and You can bring this all to pass to accomplish Your purposes. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. And that passage ends by saying that all those things are working together for good that we might be conformed to the image of His dear Son. The fact is, even when God allows things that that really have the potential to cause us to worry and be anxious, God is using those very things to chip away at our character, to, to, to shape and form our, our, our being into, more into the likeness of His Son and to be changed from one image of glory into another. We're supposed to avoid anxiety and worry. We're commanded to obey that admonition. We're given an alternative, a prescription to say, you don't need to worry. You need to actively embrace this bringing of your requests before me. Adore me as a great God. Bring your supplication to me as a good God who knows and cares. And bring forward your requests with a thankful heart because you know I am a great God who can work these things all together. But as we look at verse 7, we can see a third important principle. And that is that we can have peace in anything. It gives us a promise or a prognosis about the result. If we avoid anxiety and we do bring our request before the Lord, our, our great and good and powerful God, it says, "...and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus." that peace of God, that tranquility and that settledness of spirit wrought by God in our hearts because we trust in Him, not only for our eternal salvation, but for the challenges we face in this earthly life, produces a peace that is beyond human comprehension. That is, that the peace is so powerful, so pervasive, that it's beyond the power of our human comprehension to fully grasp all of all of the wonder of it. It's beyond our ability to fully describe how marvelous is that powerful peace that He gives. And it's described as guarding our hearts and our minds. When anxiety and fear would try to tear us into and choke the vitality of our spiritual lives and cause us to be discouraged and distraught, it gives us a peace that surrounds our hearts and our minds, those places where anxiety is fueled and foments, it would surround us and guard us like a garrison of soldiers. It guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. pastor mentioned that we have two older children. Our daughter, Christina, is 26. She's married and lives in Boston. And our son, Benjamin, is 25. He's also married and now also lives near Boston. But uh, he just recently... Uh, finished up his commitment with the United States Marine Corps. And one of the things that I remember is that when he was in Iraq in 2004 and 2005, he was at a place called Camp Al-Assad. He was also at a place called Fallujah for several months. It was a very dangerous place in those those years. And when he was at Camp Al-Assad, they used a phrase, they called it staying inside the wire. This is a huge base. Dozens of square miles. And, and, and they had an outer ring of towers and, and wire and they would have military police patrolling that and then they'd have a second inner loop and there would be people with guard towers and, and watch, watchmen looking out and then there would be the inner circle of wire. And inside of that wire is where all the, the, the um, air base was and where the, the barracks were and where all the people would eat. And he would describe, from the first moment their plane landed on the airstrip coming into that base at two o'clock in the morning in August of 2004, that mortars were coming over the wires. as soon as they heard activity in come the mortars. But he said, "You know what? When you came back inside that inner circle and you were inside the wire, he said you were protected." Now there may have been lots of danger outside, but he said, "You were inside the wire." You're protected. And all those things going on around, you could have a sense of calm. You could have a sense of ease. And folks, the absence of worry, it's not dependent on us having the perfect, ideal, smooth as ice kind of a life. Even though we may go through difficult times with our employment, or we may go through difficult times with our health, or we may face difficulties with relationships with family or friends, We may face all sorts of disconcerting circumstances in our our nation. But even though we're surrounded by all those things, our hearts and minds are in this inner circle inside the wire, surrounded by a peace that's beyond comprehension that God gives to those who are in Christ who look to Him, not as the heathen do, but as, as children look to a loving Heavenly Father who is our great God, who is a good Heavenly Father Who is the great sovereign controller of the universe who's working all these things out together for our good in His likeness. And folks, worry is a cradle-to-grave problem. It's a challenge for people of every country, of every generation, of every locale. But peace is the promised gift to God's people of every time and place when instead of worrying, we will come to Him and bring our requests and we will receive from Him that peace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, the reality is, other than Pastor and his family, I've not had a chance to personally meet any of you other than Brother Clayton and I have, have corresponded. And you know, I don't know what you've gone through in the past. I don't know what you're going through right now. And the reality is that none of us knows what we're going to face at any point in the future. But as believers, we don't have to be choked and torn. We can be at peace no matter what we're surrounded by because we'll trust in our loving Heavenly Father and bring our requests to Him. He knows how to meet our needs and to care for our souls. Let's thank Him for that. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that in a world that is full of so many changing circumstances and uncertain features of life, in a world in which there are so many things that we can't control and things that we can't even always foresee, can't control or provide, Father, we thank You that we don't have to fall prey to the choking, tearing effects of worry, but we can have the peace that passes all understanding if we'll bring our request to You by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, confident in Your power and Your goodness and Your wisdom and control. Lord, we thank You that You keep us in Christ Jesus for that gift of peace. Lord, we pray that You'd work in hearts. Lord, help us to not only embrace this truth to deliver us from anxiety we might struggle with now, But help us to embrace this truth so that we can be protected from anxiety later. And Father, we pray that we would enjoy that peace of heart and joy of spirit that comes from walking in obedience and dependence on You. And we'll thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.